We're sponsored by the American College of Physicians. They provide 163,000 members with lifelong education, clinical support, practice resources, professional development, networking opportunities, and advocacy. Visit acponline.org forward slash ACP100 to renew or sign up for a membership today. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbside. Well, hello, Matthew. Hi, Stuart. How Hi. are you? Doing good. Doing okay. So tonight on the Curbsiders, we will be talking with the great Dr. Anissa Das about obesity hypoventilation syndrome, which I definitely did not understand very well. And we really needed this episode. A reminder that this and most of our episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals. Through our partnership with VCU Health Continuing Education, you can go to curbsiders.vcuhealth.org to check those out. Paul, before we tell them about our co-host and our wonderful guest, can you tell people what is it that we generally do on the Curbsiders? Thanks for asking, Matt. Generally, we <laughs> we are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Uh, as you mentioned, we have the great Dr. Cyrus Askin with us tonight, who's going to tell us about who we talked to and what we talked about. Cyrus. Oh, thank, thank you, Paul. And, 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 you know, flattery will get you everywhere, as they say. <laughs> um, so, you know, tonight we've had a great conversation with Dr. Anissa Das. Uh, Dr. Das is an associate professor in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care, as well as Sleep Medicine at The Ohio State University, where she's the director of the Home Sleep Testing Program. She's a past chair of the Sleep Network for Chest and is a current chair of the board review course in Sleep Medicine for Chest. Clinically, she works with the bariatric surgeons at Ohio State to help treat perioperative sleep disorders and their patients. And so during our discussion, we had some great pearls courtesy of Dr. Das in regards to OHS, specifically discussing diagnostic tools and management options. Tons of great content. Let's get to it. Anissa, thank you for joining us. Can you tell the audience a one-liner about yourself and throw in some hobby or interest outside of medicine? Absolutely. I am a 47-year-old eternal optimist who absolutely believes that smiles are contagious, who is considered very active as a cyclist and hiker, but not very athletic, but thankfully <laughs> the mother of two very athletic teenage boys. Can I just mention that my wife and I have this joke because she, like you, is an eternal optimist, and uh, th I'm my best self on air. I'm very happy on air, <laughs> but I'm not. I'm. I can be a little bit of a grump at home sometimes, <laughs> and so I was. Uh, she's like, you should. We should get you a shirt that says "Smiles are contagious" because it will just be the most ironic. <laughs> <laughs> and my wife is always just smiling so much, and I'm just like walking around grumpy. See, so you're well balanced. <laughs> <laughs> We're well balanced, exactly, exactly. All right, uh, but I digress. Paul? Yeah, I'm going to forego a book recommendation. I feel like it, we've been doing this, what, five years now? Something like that. I should probably admit, we've read I, all actually, the books. I don't like reading. Um, and everyone, every time we ask someone about a book, it's always something important and serious. And I just, I don't have the energy for it right now. So I'm going to ask you instead, 
any piece, um, and especially like guilty pleasure, pop culture, TV, movie, something that you've enjoyed that has not required any brain power would be a welcome distraction for me. So I'm open to all suggestions. So you want to know a suggestion of what I think in pop culture. Talk, talk, ask me I'll one do more. Whatever thinking. Tell me a TV show or movie you've enjoyed. It doesn't have to be any mm. harder than that. I just need something to distract me for two hours um, <laughs> from the, my brain. Yeah. So I have to tell you, of late, I am really into anything that's about food and travel lately because during this pandemic, we have not been able to. So I need to do everything vicariously through other things. So I have been addicted to every single chef show that takes you to other parts of the world and allows me to experience other cultures through a culinary experience. I love that. I am paying hundreds of dollars for cable a month and it's just the food network all day long. Like I'm just, I'm wasting <laughs> you're, you're preaching to the choir. Great suggestion. So what, what's your, your favorite failure and what, what did you learn from that? Mm. Okay. So I think the first big failure I probably had was when I was an intern in undergrad. So I was a chemical engineer before I went to medical school. And I, my first internship was actually at a plastics company who was making the electrical connection parts for the automotive industry. And I was one of the first college interns they had. It was predominantly factory workers. And I came in all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and excited about what I was going to do and overheard my colleagues whispering and upset that I was going to college and saying, oh, she must have a silver spoon in her mouth. And I went home so frustrated. And I remember talking to my dad saying, because I, as an eternal optimist, have a really hard time that anyone doesn't like me. So I definitely have an excessive <laughs> need to be liked. Um, and I was really upset about that. And I got some really good advice from my dad. His answer was, you're always going to run into people who don't like you. And your job is to do the very best job that you can do. And if that can't convince them that you belong, then it's okay. And so your job this summer is to prove to them that you earned your spot more than anybody else. So I did exactly what he did. I worked my butt off that year. And at the end of the year, they actually gave me a going away party. The same people who said that I must have been born with a silver spoon in my mouth. So that was really good advice to not let people's first impressions rule your mm. experience. That's really good advice in general. Picks of the week, Matt. I mean, no segue. I think we can do some picks of the week if you guys want to. Uh, Cyrus, did you did you have a pick of the week locked and loaded? Or uh, if not, I'm sure Paul Williams always has one. Oh, I can I can always deliver when it comes to picks of the week. Um, man, there's so many. I think I'll go with Untitled Art. Um, so Untitled Art, they're the uh, they've provided this lovely beer at the uh, cost of retail for me this evening. Um, <laughs> and so they do beers and seltzers. It's a brewery out of Wisconsin, I believe. And um, they just put together some really awesome uh, beverages. In particular, their seltzer selection is divine. Um, so for, for folks that are into that sort of thing, highly recommend, very tasty, quite enjoyable. This is alcoholic seltzer. Uh, that is correct. Yes. Sir. Okay. Got it. Paul or Stuart, any picks of the week? I'm going to, I'm going to pass on that, but any picks of the week or should we get into it? Paul, go ahead. I want to hear it. I, I will say, <clears throat> excuse me, real quick. I will say I probably owe Stuart an apology. So I finished Cyberpunk 2077. A yeah. notoriously broken and, and bad game. Oh, yeah. It is deeply stupid. It was clearly yes. designed by 
it feels like what a 14 year old thinks adults talk like, and then they put yep. it in the future. Um, and it, so the whole thing is just ridiculous and absurd and crashes and unstable and it's, it's ugly most of the time and it, deeply fun. I must've spent 60 hours playing it. So I, yeah, that, I, yeah. so I will, I'll take it back. If you, if you, again, speaking of things that just kind of kill the, kill the noise inside my head, that, that did a decent job for a long period of time. So I kept watching it, hoping it would stop crashing. <laughs> How'd that go? <laughs> Not. Hey audience. Internal medicine is evolving rapidly to meet new healthcare and practice challenges. ACP, the American College of Physicians, keeps you current with the latest clinical information and practice resources to meet those challenges and be fulfilled as a lifelong learner and as an internist. And you can add your voice to ACP's advocacy efforts. You can interact with its global community of 163,000 colleagues and access a wide array of free or discounted member services. I love being a member of ACP, not just because they do great advocacy work, but because they make fantastic educational content. The internal medicine meeting is always a highlight of the year. They have great COVID-19 website and their POCUS modules are fantastic. If you haven't checked them out, check out their online POCUS modules. It's a great way to get an overview of point of care ultrasound. If you're not an ACP member, what are you waiting for? Post-training docs save $100 on their first-year membership dues through May 31st. Visit www.acponline.org forward slash ACP100 and use the code CURBSIDERS. That's acponline.org forward slash ACP100 and use the code CURBSIDERS to save $100. Join ACP today. All right, Cyrus, if you wanted to commence with the case. All right, very good. So uh, we do have a case for this evening. So um, Pickwick is a 56-year-old male coming to your clinic for a new patient appointment. Cousin of John Wick. (laughs) Yes, cousin of John Wick. Um, So Pick, uh, well, he used to be pretty athletic until a knee injury sidelined him for a few months. During that time, he gained a little bit of weight, and over the last few years, he's continued to do so. He comes to your primary care office with a prior diagnosis of diabetes, hyperlipidemia, and hypertension. Before beginning your appointment, he gets some vital signs done and has a weight of 294 pounds uh, at a height of about 5 foot 10 inches, which results in a BMI of 42 for Mr. Wick. During your encounter, um, Pick mentions that he's been feeling short of breath with moderate exertion over the last few months and that he's not been getting very restful sleep. He also feels like he's breathing heavier than others his age and overall just doesn't feel very healthy. On review of systems, he also adds that he's been having some headaches, which have been worsening and more frequent over the last few months. Overall, he seems pretty disappointed with uh, the current state of his health, but he is optimistic that with your help, he can turn things around. So I guess with that, um, you know, there's certainly a lot of questions that this presentation raises, um, but, you know, we're here to talk about OHS or obesity hypoventilation syndrome. So in regards to that, what elements of the history, Anissa, would be concerning for OHS? Thanks, Cyrus. So I think, you know, that's actually one of the problems with obesity hypoventilation syndrome is that it's relatively silent until it becomes a bigger issue. So I think we do need a heightened awareness about it. So the first one is just his body mass index in general, right? So his BMI that's over 30 and a BMI of 32, or sorry, of 42 rather, is a risk factor. Uh, the fact that he's uh, relatively dysnic with um, with exertion 
um, that while that can be just due to the obesity alone, that might be a signal that there's something else going on. And then the headaches, um, the headaches, specifically people who wake up with headaches or morning headaches can be a sign of either sleep disorder, breathing, obstructive sleep apnea, or obesity hypoventilation with uh, some residual elevated carbon dioxide levels in the morning. Hmm. What, what exactly is going on with obesity hypoventilatory syndrome? Yeah, so obesity hypoventilation syndrome is is interesting because it doesn't affect everybody who's overweight. Um, it's probably through three different pathways, um, all working together. So it's not sort of one specific thing. In part, there is a increased resistance to leptin, and that might affect your actual muscle strength, right? So your your mean inspiratory pressure and your mean expiratory pressure on pulmonary function testing actually may actually be reduced in those patients who have obesity, hypoventilation, or hypercapnia. There's actually an increased mechanical respiratory load because you have increased fat pushing on your lungs. You have um, intrathoracic fat, not intrathoracic fat, but rather extrathoracic fat, right? Pushing on the outside of your lungs. And then you also have obstructive airways. So upper airway obstruction, obstructive sleep apnea. So between the leptin resistance, the increased mechanical respiratory load, and the upper airway obstruction, they all end up sort of going down to this blunted ventilatory response. So you decrease your ventilation in response to elevations in CO2, causing persistent hypercapnia and hypoxemia and reduction in those drives. So in, in the reading that I've done for this, because I feel like I still don't understand a lot of it. Um, it, it seems like this is something that's often identified late or often, I think you even alluded to this, sort of identified when something goes wrong. So if the patient gets sick, they get really sick. And then then the conversation is had about this. For our patient, for Mr. Wick here, that feels weird to say, are there any are there any current symptoms that are suggestive of this? I mean, you were talking sort of about phenotype and the way the patient looks and risk factors and that kind of stuff, but does any of the patient's symptomatology or is there a symptomatology we should think about when we think about OHS? Yeah, that's that's an excellent question. I think I think the answer is we need to ask some more questions of him. So I think some of the questions that I would ask him would be questions that would relate to sleep disorder breathing, because in fact, of obesity hypoventilation syndrome, 90% of those patients have comorbid obstructive sleep apnea. 70% of those patients have severe obstructive sleep apnea. So that's a really good first sort of entrance into this space. So asking questions like, are you allowed to snore at night? Are you, do you have um, disrupted sleep at night? Are you waking up and feeling groggy? Do you have confusion during the day? Do you have difficulty with focus? Um, do you have that dyspnea and exertion, which he already has sort of talked to us about? Um, are you having headaches in the morning? And then some of the things that we can look for on exam are signs of central obesity. So central obesity in particular is a risk factor for obesity hypoventilation that can be um, related to a significant increase in waist to hip ratio, or even a neck circumference increase, which has been a marker for central obesity. We don't have specific cutoffs for these, but we do have cutoffs for um, obstructive sleep apnea. So we know a neck circumference um, in a man of 17 inches is a risk factor for obstructive sleep apnea, and 16 inches as a woman is a risk factor for obstructive sleep apnea. So those are some of the things that we can sort of look at to increase our concern. Anissa, I wanted to ask, I, I have to admit the Epworth sleepiness scale and the stop bang questionnaire, clinically, I'm just like, 
if someone's obese and they're like, oh, I feel, I don't feel refreshed from sleep and I'm falling asleep at traffic lights and I have morning headaches, I just send them for a sleep study. Or in my experience, cardiology and pulmonology just send like all their patients for sleep studies. <laughs> so I don't really Sometimes find them that useful. Too. <laughs> I, yeah, like I don't find them that useful uh, to do all these questionnaires because usually just clinically, I feel like my suspicion is pretty good. But should I be using them? Like, do you find them useful in making this diagnosis? Yeah, so Would you pick pick to take one? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a good question as well. So there's a few reasons why we might consider it. So the stop bang, which includes in it, are you tired or not, right? That's as a, just mm-hmm. a yes or no question. And the upper sleepiness scale, which is really an assessment of how likely you are to nod off in various situations. Give us a little bit more detailed information, specifically the upper sleepiness scale. When it's So that's a scale that can be anywhere from between 0 and 24. When it's greater than 10, it's considered there's something that's considered to be probably pathologically sleepy. So anyone that scores over 10, now that might be that they're just not sleeping enough, right? It might be that they're a medical yeah. student who just doesn't have a chance to get enough sleep. Right. Um, <laughs> but but there's some that, but that would warrant some further questions, I think. Um, the other thing, so an additional question as a sleep doc that we get is the FOSQ, which is the Functional Outcomes of Sleep Questionnaire. And the reason we do that is that's actually been shown to improve as we treat people with sleep apnea. So you can actually use it as a marker for treatment and and to a certain degree, we use the Epworth as well, but the FOSCO has really been shown to be associated with improvement in quality of life with treatment. Okay. I will I will reconsider my practice a bit Well, there. and then the other factor is to get a sleep study. A lot of insurances honestly require one of those too. So there's also that reality, at least in the US. Right. When yeah. you're kind of there with a the stop bang, right? Like if you have, I think even two points, it's, you have moderate risk, I think. So if you're, if you're obese and you're having daytime sleepiness, like you're... You're a lot of the way so there. Or you're, miss- you're close. So the stop bang has sort of evolved. A stop bang um, can have a maximal score of eight. And if you have, eight, is that right? S-T-O-P. Yeah, eight. Uh, I to, wait. <laughs> yeah, I had, to count, I had to count on my fingers. I'm just going to be real honest. So if you have three um, to four, it's considered intermediate risk. And five and greater is considered very high risk. So I think what you need, and as you guys know, when you're doing any kind of a screening test, it's really based on your pretest probability. So in a patient um, population where you have a high prevalence in the morbidly obese, a, a level of three actually might be really significant. But in somebody who's not quite as high of a risk, you might be leaning more towards a, a level of five or higher. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So with And that's for with sleep this, apnea, not for OHS, just to clarify. Right. Yeah. We're the primary for uh, Mr. Wick here, not John Wick, Stuart. We don't mm. want... We don't want to I wouldn't mind being the primary for John Wick. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, let's say that his we do we do the stop bang on him. We do the Epworth sleepiness scale. We're more worried than we were already. Is there any specific thing that you're going to look for other than maybe like you mentioned neck circumference, waist to hip ratio, things like that? Um, is there anything else that you would look for on your exam as you're just working this patient up for a first time trying to make this diagnosis? So as we talked about joint risk factors for sleep disorder breathing, we'd also probably look at his airway. So a crowded airway, a malampati score of three or four as opposed to one or two, so a more crowded airway, any retronathia. Um, the other thing is looking for signs of uh, coropulmonal, right? So um, le- lower extremity edema, um, those, those are other things that we we look for in these in this population. I don't know if you want me to talk about la- the one. Th- I'll just say it. The one thing that I make my fellows and my residents look at all the time 
um, is if we're even thinking a little bit about it, I'm like, you know what? Almost every patient's had a serum, uh, a Chem 7 at some point in the past six yeah. months. And so we actually have some new guidelines that came out that said, if you think the patient is low to moderate risk, and they say low to moderate risk is you think the chance of having obesity hypoventilation syndrome is 20% or less. But you know, you kind of, you thought about it a little bit. So mm -hmm. in that situation, you can actually use a serum bicarb to judge, to guide you as to whether or not you should go further. And a serum bicarbonate of less than 27 has a very high likelihood of not having hypercapnia on a blood gas. So in a patient who's low to moderate risk, a serum bicarbonate of less than 27 can kind of tell you, you know what, I don't need to sweat it. But the converse is not necessarily true. So if it's 27 or higher, then, and you're, and you're worried, you should probably just go ahead and get a blood gas just, just so that we know what we're dealing with. So the negative predictive value of that yes, sir. bicarb is, is, is where the money's you at. You got it. Exactly. Can I just, as a brief aside to the tongue fat thing or to the, the, the Malampati score, when I was looking this up, like, I always just like to look and like, uh, you know, what recent articles came out on this. And I found an article that was talking about like tongue exercises for patients with like sleep no. apnea and the loss. And then patients where they actually did, I think, MRIs of patients like upper airways mm -hmm. and like people who lost the most tongue fat had the most improvement in their, uh, you know, in their symptoms or their, you know, their parameters, whatever they were measuring. I just thought it was funny. I had no idea. So I just wanted to take this opportunity to ask an expert, are any of your patients doing like tongue okay, physical so therapy? So actually, as it were, I'm going to give you something else to look up when we're done. Okay. So there, there, is, there is some literature that that might help. And in fact, in particular, there's a specific instrument. Do you guys know what the instrument is that's been associated with improvement in sleep apnea? Are we talking like musical instruments? Yes. Like, are we supposed to learn how to play like <laughs> yes. harmonica or Clarinet? something? Clarinet? No. Oh, harmonica, no. It's a much cooler name. What? It's the, I, it's I have no the, idea. It's the didgeridoo. <laughs> oh my gosh. So there's the actually, there's, a, there's two studies at least on use of the didgeridoo and playing the didgeridoo increases upper airway tone and can reduce your apnea hypopnea index. So there you go. I can't wait to prescribe this to my next uh, patient. <laughs> See, little little did you know you were going to learn about musical instruments tonight. I, I also yeah. have to ask, like, how does that even come up as an area for study? <laughs> you know, well, I, I didn't write this. I did not author the study, Cyrus, but uh, we could certainly link to it. I'll, I'll paste it in the chat here for you. Outstanding. Uh, <laughs> I look forward to reading that. Thank you. And you can get a didgeridoo on Amazon for 30 bucks. <laughs> There's a, how many are left, wait, Stuart? Wait, before I just I, I want to clarify that curbsiders are not being sponsored by the didgeridoo. <laughs> I'd also like to clarify that we are totally open to it. So if you are a didgeridoo manufacturer, my DMs are open. Paul, we're talking all about sleep tonight. We both know sleep is important. We've we've talked about this on the show a lot, and I I am sleeping really well these days. I am very happy with my birch mattress. How's your experience been? Matt, not to make a pun, it's been a dream with my birch mattress. I'll tell you, it's, I think we talked a little bit off air about this, but sleeping is my favorite thing to do. Like I, it's kind of, I'm kind of great at it, but I've never been better than since I, I've got my birch mattress. It really is just a delight. For me, this was, this was an upgrade in many ways. My old mattress was like over 10 years old. It was a was like you know it, it was it was no longer doing the job and also paul <laughs> this is a king size birch mattress it is i i have never had so much space 
my wife and I, we joked about separate beds for years, but the king size <laughs> mattress has fixed that problem. So Great. no longer anywhere near each other. It's fantastic. <laughs> well, you know, Paul, you made a joke about our, our marriage might not last 25 years, which happens to be the warranty that you get with a birch mattress <laughs> and oh. with an organic birch mattress, Paul. Let me just remind you, you get a 25 year warranty. And if you don't like the mattress that you get this, it's a hundred day you can try it out, and if you don't like it in 100 days, you can send it back. But that that's not going to happen. And Paul, my wife and I don't need to get separate beds because we have a king-size birch <laughs> mattress. No, that's great. And you can now ignore each other in the same bed, and I think that's <laughs> really what marriage is about. And I, I think one of the things that I love about birch mattresses is they are made right here in America with just three materials sourced straight from Mother Nature. So they are made from organic latex. New Zealand wool. I don't have anything to back this up, but I, I think that they shear the sheep right in the factory um, <laughs> and also made with American steel springs. So high quality materials put together right here in the United States. All right, audience. So come on, what are you waiting for? You know, you want a new mattress. Go to birchliving.com slash curb because they're giving $200 off all mattresses and two free eco rest pillows at birchliving.com forward slash curb. That's $200 off all mattress orders and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash curb. So we've kind of, I've kind of derailed things here, but let's, let's just say what we've talked about. Okay. So we're going to, we're, we're looking at the patient's, uh, Malampati score. We're, uh, looking for signs of core pulmonal. You, you mentioned if they've had a serum bicarb, which probably they have. Look for the serum bicarb. If it's less than 27, that is a good negative predictive value for saying probably we don't have to think about uh, obesity hypoventilation unless we have really really high suspicion. In which case, you know, we we wouldn't be uh, we wouldn't be reassured by that. So, what other labs or imaging? Because my understanding is this is a little bit of a diagnosis of exclusion. So, uh, what, yeah, what else absolutely. Do we do? So, so are we? So do you want to first talk about what rules in and then what rules out? So let's talk about that. So the first thing that you need to make a diagnosis of obesity hypoventilation, there's three, there's three criteria. The first criteria is you have to have a uh, body mass index of 30 or greater. So you have to meet criteria for obesity, which makes sense, right? The second criteria is that you have to have a blood gas that shows a PCO2 of 45 or greater. So you have to have hypercapnia documented by a blood gas. And then the third criteria, and this is exactly what you were getting at, and that is that you have to have um, ruled out any other potential causes of, of hypoventilation. So I think that's sort of what it comes down to. Um, so the first steps are the rule-in portions, right? Well, I know he's obese. I know he has – do we, do we want to give him hypercapnia? Have we found out if he's hypercapnic? Yeah, let's let's go back to the case, yeah. Cyrus. So why don't you let's what's the next part of this case, just so we can figure out if if he's going to rule in or not? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we go ahead and and we bring uh, Mr. Wick uh, over to the lab. We get a blood draw, arterial blood gas, and and his PCO two, uh, oddly enough, is sixty two. Okay, so now our interest is really peaked, right? Because there's something that's going on, and I think most people, at least in my experience, would immediately think COPD. <laughs> And so, okay, that's fair. That's not wrong. Um, so let's get some PFTs, right? And the, part of the criteria is also going to be that we need to show that he does not have obstructive lung disease. So 
his um, lung function has to not be obstructive. And he has to not show signs of neuromuscular disease or significant um, restrictive lung disease. Although that being said, I will say pulmonary function testing in patients with severe obesity may show very mild um, reduction in total lung capacity. But what you will see, and they actually might show, like as we mentioned before, a slight reduction in, in your MIPS and your MEPS, your mean inspiratory and expiratory pressures. But what you're going to see when it's due to obesity compared to neuromuscular disease. So in neuromuscular disease, your FRC or your functional residual capacity is actually going to be elevated a little bit because you can't blow down because you're too weak to blow that ERV down. So your ERV is actually elevated and your RV is elevated. But in obesity, and this is the, this is a part that's super clever, right? Your functional residual capacity is very low. You can tell I'm super nerdy because I think this is cool. Um, <laughs> and your expiratory reserve volume or your ERV is really low. Like my, I've had a um, a patient last week actually at Cashlack Memorial who had, um, we were working up for this and her ERV when we did her pulmonary function testing was 13%. Um, percent. So 13% of predicted. So, I mean, these guys have minuscule ERVs. Um, not always, but that's that's one thing. So anyone you you see that has a mild reduction in total lung capacity, reduction in FRC, and a really tiny ERV, that's another person you're going to have a little bit heightened awareness about, ooh, should I be thinking about OHS in this patient? And I'm just curious, is that due to atelectasis, that that change, or, or so is there a, a different little bit. It's due to all that extra thoracic, extra thoracic, not intrathoracic, like I said before. So the extra thoracic... Um, fatty tissue, both pushing up on the diaphragm and in on the lungs. And it actually reduces sort of that, um, that lung volume a little bit and increases your respiratory load. So it makes it harder, but really that diaphragm, right? You can't breathe out quite as easily. The, I think the one part about this that I'm a little bit confused based on this definition, I, I s seem to see the patient that's like, they're obese and they've smoked for a long time. And I, I, I feel like COPD and OHS can coexist or maybe I'm just misunderstanding what I was seeing, but I, I thought I've seen that. Paul, you were nodding a little bit. Have you seen that? Yeah. So yeah, you're you're calling what we can't. You're you're describing this situation. I think where we all anecdotally will say, yeah, this patient probably has this too, but I technically can't call it right. Anytime you have another reason for it, technically you can't call it because just like oh, any okay. other diagnosis of exclusion, right? If you have another reason for it, you can't technically call it. But I think you're right. I honestly do. I think there's times where we've said, this patient may have a little COPD, but honestly, I don't think that's the predominant cause. I think it's the fact that their BMI is 68, right? I think that's probably the bigger factor. Um, I think what I actually see more commonly is when patients come to me post-hospitalization um, with no PFTs, they had acute respiratory failure, and everyone assumed they had COPD and they have COPD written all over their chart. And I'm like, yeah. how long have you smoked? They're like, oh, I never smoked. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> and you don't have any PFTs. That's odd. How'd you get a diagnosis of COPD? They gave it to me in the hospital. I'm like, yeah, I don't think that's what it is. <laughs> so I think that's the other thing. COPD is diagnosed with pulmonary function testing. And if you don't have it and you don't have obstruction on your PFTs, you probably don't have COPD and you might look for other causes. Mm. Okay. So, so now that your your interest is in uh, pick has peaked, would you say that your diagnosis is made at this point, or is there any further workup that you would want? That's a good question. So I so because of so let's say so we've ruled everything out on pulmonary function tests, right? We have normal pulmonary function tests that do not show obstructive lung disease. I think at this point, 
Um, I would, I typically in these folks will also get a chest x-ray to show that there's nothing else going on. But because of the significant um, comorbid obstructive sleep apnea, most of us feel it's, it's um, especially in the outpatient setting. Um, so I think it's a little different in an inpatient setting. But that prior to really moving forward, we're going to go ahead and get um, an in-lab polysomnography, if possible, to get in-lab, because then I can actually track their CO2, either with pedal CO2 or transcutaneous CO2, to see if it changes throughout the night and if there's a significant difference. But also to look for whether there's obstructive or central sleep apnea, because that's going to change my management of this patient. When when we say central sleep apnea, is it, I, I think of ob- obesity hypoventilation ventilation as a central sleep apnea is that is that like too simplistic or is that inaccurate uh, no totally separate disorders so okay so i'm glad you asked that so let's talk about the difference obstruct so first of all let's back up sleep apnea sleep apnea is defined by um apneas which is i stop breathing for 10 seconds or longer or hypopneas which means i've decreased my airflow by 10 seconds or longer um, that's associated with either a desaturation or an arousal. And um, and, and those, those definitions are a little bit variable based on which criteria you're using. Um, and you have to have at least five of those per hour of sleep to meet the criteria for sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. 15 for moderate, 30 for severe. Obesity hypoventilation, you might not have any of these events. You actually, because, so we talked about it. So 90% of patients with obesity hypoventilation have comorbid obstructive sleep, um, sleep apnea. 10% may not have any, which is interesting. And that's, a, which we can talk about a little bit later. That's a little bit of a different ballpark. Um, but central sleep apnea is where my brain, so that's a different mechanism, as opposed to having a blunted ventilatory response where I'm just not breathing enough in general, Central sleep apnea often is actually an, an over-brisk, overly brisk ventilatory response where I actually over-breathe to a small change in CO2 where I breathe below my CO2 threshold and it causes a periodic breathing. That's chain stokes breathing like we see in heart failure or the changes in breathing we often will see even in um, opioid use might be a form of periodic breathing or high altitude periodic breathing as actually our breathing is um, exceeds um, what is necessary, and so we blow our CO two lower than our than our CO two trigger point. So, so it's a little bit different. But you're right; you can have comorbid central sleep apnea, but they're different beasts. Mm-hmm. So, the central sleep apnea is diagnosed totally differently, and it has to be on a sleep study where you're you're monitoring that. Yes, and- sir. Yep. Okay, you got it. No, I'm so glad we brought that up. That's a really good distinction. Yeah, I because and I guess when we went back to you told us the three different pathways like leptin, there's yeah. decreased muscular strength, and yeah. then they have like this extra load on yeah. their uh, and it's really a combination of all three, right? It's yeah, all three right. working together. Okay, got it. So we would we would get chest X ray. We're imaging this person's lungs. We're getting blood gas. We're uh, getting PFTs to make sure there's no obstruction. And then we're going to get a sleep study, probably an in-lab study, so we can do a little bit more of the bells and whistles. And uh, from there, uh, what would be your next step? Yeah. So I will say the one extra test I usually get if I really, once I've diagnosed obesity, I have a ventilation, is I get an echocardiogram in a lot of these guys because pulmonary hypertension is so prevalent in these guys. And I think it's it's underdiagnosed. 
So that's just one other test I would probably get, especially if this is a patient who's going to end up going to surgery. That might be helpful to the anesthesiologist to know it. Um, I think people talk about pulmonary hypertension and obstructive sleep apnea often, but they don't talk about pulmonary hypertension and obesity hypoventilation, which is probably far more prevalent because of the more significant hypoxemia, which is really the driving force, right, um, for for the pH. So, so I've so we've diagnosed our patient with you know the, Mr. Wick actually has obesity hypoventilation, and assuming he doesn't have central sleep apnea, and it's predominantly um, obstructive sleep apnea, the guidelines will actually say that the large phenotype, so those patients who have severe obstructive sleep apnea, specifically AHI of 30 or greater, especially those with 50 or greater, but 30 or greater, probably the main pathway, you know how we kind of talked about the three components that sort of lead into OHS, the main pathway for these guys is probably their obstruction. So CPAP alone has been shown to be equal to bi-level in reduction of CO2 over time, in quality of life, um, and even um, some improvements in, in hypoxemia over time. And now this is in a stable patient. So Mr. Wick is stable, right? Because he's an outpatient. He's not an acute inpatient. So that's he's a little different from, from some of the patients that we see. So the first line... For patients with severe obstructive sleep apnea that's also associated, which is another reason why we did the sleep study, right, that's also associated with OHS, is probably CPAP. And when you, so this is in the outpatient setting, Mm -hmm. without a sleep study, I've never seen anyone get CPAP. But if we, if we've checked all the boxes, like to, to qualify someone as having, like we've proven We've proven that they have, uh, you know, their their PCO two is elevated, mm-hmm. they're obese, and they have sleep disordered breathing. We really haven't found another cause. Are, have you? Do you ever get this person on CPAP without like an in lab sleep study? Are you talking about an outpatient or an inpatient? Outpatient. No. An outpatient. Yeah. Um. No, and I don't think it would be appropriate to be quite honest, because you want to know what level of CPAP pressure that they need, because. What we don't have great data on is using auto-titrating CPAP for these obesity hypoventilation patients. Okay. So, so you really do need diagnostic studies and a CPAP study because I all because what we haven't really talked about is a large part of this is that you know with hypoventilation often comes hypoxemia, right? Yeah. Um, and so these guys often have noct- significant nocturnal hypoxemia. So I want to make sure that I'm I'm resolving that as well, and that they don't need either a different kind of support or oxygen. Right. Oh, okay. but I do do two two seconds about that. Please don't ever, ever, ever give a patient with obesity hypoventilation syndrome oxygen alone and not CPAP. That is like <laughs> that's, if there's one thing that anyone takes away from this, oh my gosh, don't send somebody home with oxygen alone. If their CO two is up, like don't you can add it, but don't give it to them alone. You, you don't want to make them more hypercapnic. Is that what yes. you're saying? I don't want to make them more hypercapnic. And that's not going to fix your ventilation. Like oxygen does not fix ventilation. Yeah. Just, ask, blunts our, you, just blunts our ventilatory response further. <laughs> can I ask you how you discuss this with patients, especially the obesity hypoventilation part? Like I feel it's often very helpful to hear um, the expert script when you're actually discussing it with the patient, sort of what's going on with them. Because I feel like it's, again, conceptually, I find this a little bit of a challenge. Um, so how, how when you're talking to patients, how do you explain this to them? Yeah, I think... A- a big concern of theirs is often so. So I'm going to back up a little bit, and then I'll t- and then I'll kind of go into that. Oftentimes in the clinic, and I I think I didn't even bring this up. The other thing that might raise my eyebrow a little bit more that they might have it is if their daytime oxygen saturation 
is in the mid to low 90s, right? So it's not abnormal. They don't need oxygen, but it's lower than I would expect it to be. And they and you know they have no other history of smoking or anything else. And so those are the patients where it's a it's an easy conversation to say, you know what? Even though you don't need oxygen right now, you might need it at nighttime, or you might need some kind of support to make your breasts bigger. And sometimes our weight actually makes us not breathe efficiently. And so you feel short of breath during the day because you're working so hard to breathe at night. So if we can actually make it easier for you to breathe at night, it might actually be easier to breathe during the daytime, A, and B, if we can improve your oxygen levels, um, that's going to that's gonna be better for your, the health of your body in general and decrease your cardiovascular risks. And if they have comorbid pulmonary hypertension, we know the best treatment for pulmonary hypertension is improving hypoxemia, right? Like beyond anything else we have, if you improve the hypoxemia, we can, that's probably the best thing we can do. So that's the factor. And then we do have we do have some um, literature showing that when you compare patients with obesity to hypoventilation, and we look at them, um, so one study showed, a, it was um, a study looking at patients with obesity hypoventilation that was untreated, and their survival at 18 months was 77%, which was wow. far lower than I expected. And when you look at comparative studies on non-invasive ventilation, so that's actually a bi-level, they haven't done these studies on CPAP, but on non-invasive ventilation, those survival levels around 18 months are in the upper uh, mid to upper 90s. So that's another important factor, right? So these weren't head-to-head trials. These are two different comparative trials, but showing significant differences in survival. So I think, uh, Anissa, you kind of um, stepped into this question. We talk about CPAP. We talk about bi-level. Could you try to demystify some of these terms for us and, and help us understand kind of what you're using and when you're using it and what the real differences are? Yeah, I absolutely can because I think I think it's important and I think that for those of us who do treat this, it's um, our inclination is to want to use bi-level. So CPAP is exactly what the anacronym, st- anacron- I can't even say the word, anacronym, mm. stands for continuous positive airway pressure. So it's one pressure all the time. And I tell people to think of it as an airway stent, Right. So I'm breathing in and out and rather than, because I suck in with my diaphragms, you, you can't see me, but I'm actually taking a deep breath and I'm showing you my, my, my diaphragms moving down. So as you take a deep breath with your diaphragms, you actually suck air in and it causes collapse um, of your oropharynx. But CPAP actually increases the pressure at your, at, at your mouth and nose, decreasing that pressure gradient so it keeps your airway open. Bi-level has two pressures. So there's the expiratory pressure, which is basically um, like your like your um, CPAP, but then there's the inspiratory pressure that's a higher pressure when you breathe in. So when you so if I had a CPAP at a pressure of eight, that'd be it'd be at eight all the time. But on bi level, if I was on ten over eight, when I breathe or well, you would never have bi level ten over eight. Let's say twelve <laughs> over eight, right? When I'm breathing out, I'm getting eight. But when I'm breathing in, I'm getting 12. And I want to just clarify, that's different than, for folks who have patients on ventilators, that's different than the concept of pressure support, right? So when we think of, just to do a quick caveat, because I think that's hard for, especially for trainees to think about. So in a, on a ventilator, we think about our PEEP and PEEP is all the time, right? So a PEEP of eight would be all the time and pressure support would be on top of that. So if I had pressure support of four, when I breathe in, I would be getting a, 12, a pressure of 12. 
And when I breathe out, I would be getting a pressure of eight. The equivalent of that on bi-level would be 12 over eight because I'm separating the pressures. When I breathe in, I get 12. And so what we call, so when we are talking about bi-level, we're actually taught, and we're talking about that difference. The pressure support is equivalent to what sleep doctors or pulmonologists refer to as the delta pressure. So the delta pressure is equivalent to the pressure support. That might've been a little too nerdy. I apologize. But I do think that's an important distinction as you come off of a ventilator and you put a patient on bi-level. So bi-level helps to augment. So when we put a patient on this, we increase the EPAP to keep the airway open. So that's the pressure when I'm breathing out. And then I further increase the IPAP to make my breaths bigger. So the difference between the IPAP and the EPAP is what's really driving my ventilation, right? So it, it sounds like you're uh, you're decreasing the work of breathing. Absolutely. With yep. Um, but there's different kinds of bi-level, right? So there's bi-level um, that's just synchronized, which will absolutely. So every time I take a breath, it's gonna make my breath bigger. But then there's time synchronized or bi-level ST. Which, if I don't breathe at all, and and you know, Dr. Wado, when you were talking about central sleep apnea, if I don't take a breath, that's going to actually give me a breath, right? Mm-hmm. So it's going to, so that's when it will give me that breath as well. So there's different kinds of devices that do different things, and that's why it's important to know the kind of device your patient's on. Yeah, it's so it sounds like to start off, we our patients are going to be getting just straight up CPAP unless they pre- had presented with an acute like respiratory failure. And we're worried about that. But for patients, if we made the diagnosis of OHS, the the first, for, for many of the patients, it may be CPAP. At, at least if they have comorbid severe obstructive sleep apnea, because that's pushing it towards that phenotype, right? Yeah. If they have more mild obstructive sleep apnea, you might be a little bit more worried about a blended ventilatory response. Yeah. And those guys may end up needing a different kind of device earlier on. Um, but yes, for the most part, CPAP first. And then what we then tend to do, do um, is we tend to, you know, we, we watch them closely over the first month or two. And while we're not necessarily trying to make everything perfect, we're looking at trends. I think that's probably the biggest, the biggest key to managing these guys is we're looking for things to move in the right direction. Um, so I, if I'm looking at this, if I know what the serum bicarb was when I knew what my blood gas was, I want that to trend better. I do want them to not be acidotic. I don't like pHs that are acidotic because that's just a sign of instability. And as a pulmonologist, that just makes me not happy, right? So I'd like the pH to be normal. So you would repeat the room air blood gas or or just the blood gas and you're yeah. looking for the pH to be 7.35 or above? Yeah. At some point, I really do want that. And what we know is over one to two months, these tend to normalize. And what's really cool is not just as the CO2 normalize, but the oxygenation improves as well. 25% of these patients may continue to need some supplemental oxygen. Um, or um, augmented ventilation. Um, but if things are not moving in the right direction, that's the sign that you might need to sort of upgrade the kind of therapy that we're on. Or if the patient's symptoms aren't improving, they're still feeling really dysnic when they when they're, you know, when they do minimal effort or they're really hypersomnolent or they're waking up and they're still having horrible headaches. If you haven't seen a significant improvement in symptoms, that might be a trigger to get a blood gas a little earlier. Okay. Primary care clinicians interested in serving patients in high-need communities may be eligible for federal government loan repayment programs. The Health Resources and Services Administration, or HRSA, an HHS agency, is currently accepting applications for its National Health Service Corps, or NHSC. 
The NHSC loan repayment programs provide student loan assistance to medical, dental, behavioral, and mental health clinicians in exchange for their service in communities of need. Qualified clinicians may receive up to $100,000 in student loan repayment, depending on the program. New funding from the Biden administration's American Rescue Plan will allow the NHSC to award the largest number of clinicians in the program's history. Providers working at any NHSC-approved site or treatment facility are encouraged to apply. Applications will be accepted through May 6th. Visit nhsc.hrsa.gov to learn about eligibility and the application process. Anissa, I wanted to try to move on um, to the next section of this, but I just want to make sure I'm understanding correctly. So we're going to have patients, uh, most of our patients will get CPAP and some of the patients will get bi-level. And if the patients are on bi-level, we want to look at the difference between the inspiratory pressure and the continuous pressure. Uh, and the, the difference between those, the delta, that's like how much ventilatory support they're actually receiving. And you, I asked you off air, is there any typical pressures that we should think about or is it just patient dependent and they just have to get a titrating study in the lab in order to to really know what they need? Yeah, Matt, thanks. So I think probably what I would say to just think about is these patients are a little bit of a different beast than sleep apnea. So, you know, the classic 10 over 6 is probably going to be insufficient for these guys. In general, the bottom number or the EPAP is got to be, has to be high enough to treat any obstructive apneas, but we don't know that before a sleep study. But the delta pressure, the difference between those two numbers is often much greater than the, the, than the classic four that we think of initially. So these guys might have delta pressures of eight or 10 or 12 or even 15, like some of our COPD patients that we are trying to ventilate um, and, and, the, and the newer emerging data for those patients. So I think that the most important thing to realize is that these patients might have a slight, they may have a slightly lower EPAP, but they definitely are going to have a higher difference between those two pressures, right? Between the IPAP and the EPAP. Okay. And Paul, I believe you had some questions more about the specific role of the primary care. Yeah. I mean, it's, it goes back to my universal question on my tombstone. What, what am <laughs> I to do with this? So like, you know, we've, we've got the diagnosis and you're kind of managing it. I guess what, what kind of things should I be discussing in the office with the patient and sort of how, I guess, sort of what, I don't even want to call them adjunctive therapies, but in what ways can the internist who's helping take care of this patient or, or who's dictating sort of where this patient's going, how can, how can we be useful to make sure that they're getting better and continuing to improve? Um, Paul, you're actually speaking to my heart because I think that way too physician, way too few physicians don't address um, the issue of obesity itself, right? I've had so much, so because this is actually what I do in my practice, um, I talk about it a lot and I can't tell you how many times people will say, you know, you're actually the first doctor who's talked about, to me about my weight. I've definitely offended some people by talking to them about their weight. So you have to be thoughtful about that. Um, but we have to think about obesity um, as a disease equal to cancer. It kills people, right? And I have absolutely told patients that at this point, the greatest risk for your death is your weight. Um, and, that's, and that's not wrong oftentimes. Um, so if that's what we believe, then we need to target that. So I think as a primary care physician, um, really helping them find resources for weight loss. So getting them involved in a nutritionist, if the hospital system you work with has a um, weight management program. So find out, I refer people to our weight management program weekly. Um, that might be a dietary weight management program or a surgical weight management program. I think also as a primary care doc, tracking whatever diet program you do, if you actually 
track that with monthly visits or regular visits. When they do, if they do decide to pursue um, bariatric surgery, many times insurance has required that they've been through a diet plan with a doctor who's been monitoring something. So if you've been working with them, when you refer them, they actually automatically, you might save them six months going towards their bariatric surgery. So I think that's really, really, really important. Um, Tracheostomy itself can be a treatment. So thinking about that, um, that is so last, you know, last ditch. Um, I have had, um, thankfully, no patients that have had to refer for tracheostomy. There have been talks about certain medications that stimulate uh, breathing. Those actually haven't really panned out, so we're not doing that so much. Um, So I think the main thing is is kind of just telling the patient the the different aspects of things and and explaining the importance. And then the other last piece is avoiding other respiratory suppressants, right? So making sure that you don't have that patient on benzodiazepines, sleep aids, um, narcotics, other things that are going to be suppressors of your respiratory effort. Alcohol. <laughs> Alcohol. Well, especially in this pandemic, I don't know about y'all, but all of my patients have significantly increased their use of alcohol and the alcohol sales in the state of Ohio skyrocketed. <clears throat> Stuart, I don't know if you got to see this, but uh, we're talking about weight loss here. The ATS guidelines mention a 25 to 30% loss of body weight as the goal, which I thought was- 25 to 35%. Uh, 25 to 30, but yeah, 30. I mean, that's, that's a lot. I, I think outside of an obesity, like uh, outside of a bariatric surgery, uh, I haven't seen that kind of weight loss. I, I, maybe the rare, like one-off patient, but that's, that's pretty big. So Anissa, as you mentioned, that is that, that's not necessarily evidence-based. That's just like the kind of, I, I'm not sure where that recommendation came from, yeah. like where th- that number came from. Cause that's a lot. I mean, even with medication, you're hoping like 10%, you're, you're high-fiving everybody if you get 10%. Right. Yeah. So we know that, you know, a 10% weight change has, you know, a, between a 20 and 30% difference in your apnea hypopnea index for obstructive sleep apnea. Um, the, the analogous studies, I don't know, I, I'm not aware of that they've been done for obesity hypoventilation, but we do know that you need a pretty significant weight change um, to alleviate that. I can tell you Again, anecdotally, that in our bariatric patients uh, here at Cashlick Memorial, we really have had um, several patients um, resolve their obesity hypoventilation, come off their bilevel, come off their oxygen with their weight loss surgery. Yeah, right, right. And I, that's that's kind of what I meant. I, I was just saying, like, it, as a primary care, like, if you're trying to do this on your own, if, if 25 to 30% is really needed, like, we just can't get those kind of numbers. I mean, any, any good weight loss program, like, like I said, if you're getting, if you get 10% or more, you're, you're high-fiving. If high I see those numbers, around. I'm alarmed. If I see that in my office, I'm panicked that something bad is going on. Yeah. If you see 25 doing, to 30%, you're like, you're like, t- kiss your family goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. But uh, that, so that's great. So hopefully uh, our listeners and hopefully uh, us as hosts have good resources to uh, get into Cashlack's uh, bariatric program uh, if we have patients that really have severe obesity hypoventilation, so we can help them out with that. Now, Cyrus, I think we have another uh, a last part to this this case here. We're gonna, I, I believe, Mr. Wick is gonna get, uh, he's gonna decompensate a bit. It's gonna yeah, get John so, <laughs> okay, so um, you know we've been talking about um, Mr. Mr. Pickwick here and his kind of ambulatory experience. So let's change gears a little bit, and we'll talk about his brother John, 
So unfortunately for John, you know, he's been offset. He's gained a whole bunch of weight. And now all of a sudden he's actually presenting to the emergency department. And so John Wick here is is presenting with respiratory distress. And, and you kind of go down, you see him in the emergency department, you eyeball him and you're thinking this could be obesity hypoventilation syndrome. And so my question is going to be, how does your approach uh, to management differ in the inpatient setting if you if this is like the first presentation of obesity hypoventilation syndrome? Okay, so that's a really good question because we do approach it a little bit differently. So first, let me just comment that the demographic of that patient might be a little bit different. We know, so we didn't really talk about this, but men tend to have a higher risk or sex tends to be a risk factor for for obstructive sleep apnea. That risk does not exist for obesity hypoventilation syndrome. Um, women tend to have the same risk, but they might present differently. Women may, um, there's some studies that suggest that women may present later and may be more likely to show up in the ER. So John might've been a woman, right? So there might be a higher likelihood that a woman's going to present um, in acute hypercapnic respiratory failure. So that's just thinking about demographics and who we should be thinking about is in particular. The recent American thoracic guidelines actually recommend in this situation, in a patient who's unstable, they should be discharged from the hospital on non-invasive ventilation. So that's different from CPAP in that we do have a delta pressure, right? So we're augmenting their ventilation for, for at least initially. Um, and you can stabilize them over the three months. And then within that three-month period, then you're going to go ahead and have them come back for a titration to make sure that our EPAP is high enough to control any obstructive sleep apnea. And to see if maybe at that point, once we've gotten their, their significant acidosis normalized a little bit, we might be able to actually get them on CPAP. So they may not need that more advanced therapy. Oftentimes, patients are being discharged from the hospital on very advanced devices and get stuck on them, and they're very expensive, and they may not be what they necessarily need. So the key is just to follow them up and see if that's what they ultimately need. And they may be able to just be on a bi-level device um, when they get discharged. They don't necessarily need, you know, a non-invasive ventilator. Is there a proposed mechanism as to why a patient with OHS gets better and they might not need bi-level? Like, do they recondition their respiratory muscles or do the leptin levels change in a favorable way? How, I, I don't, I'm not really sure how that works. So I, the, the answer is, you know, I think people would say if it's really due to obstructive sleep apnea, then maybe CPAP would have been fine all along, but nobody feels comfortable putting somebody who's acidotic on CPAP alone because we need to stabilize them. So we're dealing with an acute crisis first. And then when we get back to whoever, it's not that they're physiology is changing. It's more like a patient who's in heart failure. We're fixing their acute heart failure first, getting all the fluid off, and then putting them on the same medicines that had we saw them before, we would have been fine with. Does that make sense? Yeah. And is that a similar reason as to why they might, because I think also you mentioned, I can't remember if we, we said this on air, not yet. Sometimes patients initially they're on oxygen with the bi-level, like bleeding in, and then eventually they might come off the oxygen if they mm -hmm. get better from this. Is that something yeah. else that also happens? Yeah. So that yeah. So that so that's a little bit different. So that is, you know, either John or Pick, right? Once you're on PAP, um, over you know one or three months, one of the things that we're looking for is actually, hey, can we get them off their oxygen? So not only does the CO two come down with positive airway pressure, but the oxygenation actually does improve and. And part of that might be due to we're reducing their work of breathing um, at nighttime. So we're augmenting things. Part of it might be that we're recruiting some 
um, and it probably is, we're recruiting some alveoli, right? So we're improving their ventilation and we're decreasing their work of breathing over time. And are you talking about, um, are these patients typically, the theoretical patient that we're talking about here that was on oxygen initially, you're you're assuming they were on like daytime oxygen and nighttime, like t- continuous oxygen uh, could, or just could be like- either. Could um, be it's either. more common that you require, you know, as we all know, you need oxygen usually at night when you tend to hypoventilate yeah. more first. But there are some people absolutely who require day. I mean, I have a patient right now who's on six liters of, of daytime oxygen. Wow. In part because of her core pulmonal, you know, from her long term um, OHS before we ever saw her, that was, you know, we just can't reverse. Um, but, but absolutely, you can have daytime um, hypoxemia as well. So both of those can improve. Not everybody can. Like I said, 25% of patients might continue to require some oxygen. Right. And it, so if, if we see somebody in the clinic in follow-up and they were on, they were put on bi-level and discharged, and now we're seeing them, we should try to get them another sleep study sometime in that first one to three months so that they can have a a titration study to see like what kind of pressures they need. Do they really need bi-level? Can they get by with CPAP? And if they're on oxygen, can the oxygen be removed as well? Absolutely. I think these patients, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer that, um, patients who are, who are stable with, you know, chronic medical problems really, even obstructive sleep apnea can probably be cared for by a lot of primary care physicians. And I, and I know there's lots of primary care physicians around our country who are caring for these things. Something like obesity, hypoventilation, probably if you have access um, to a specialist, it's helpful to at least get their input for sort of sorting out the initial settings. So it probably either, a referral for a, they may end up needing a diagnostic study in all honesty, because sometimes they only have the CPAP or the bi-level machine um, temporarily until you justify it to insurance. So you, you might have to do it just to justify it. That's that's one of the issues. Um, and then the titration to make sure that you're addressing both issues, both potential obstructive sleep apnea as well as hypoventilation. Back to one of my earlier questions slash misunderstandings about central sleep apnea. If the person is found to have central sleep apnea on their sleep study, do those people pretty much buy themselves a bi-level device just like forever? Or do or is that also something that you can see improve as they lose weight or as they are treated uh, for a certain period of time? So the central sleep apnea would be a, a, a bi-level with a backup rate, right? So a bi-level ST. And uh-huh. that's probably due to something different. So they, they're more likely to continue to need it. Unless it's related to heart failure, um, that that may that, that sometimes honestly does improve with um, with pap use, or if they're on opiates and that um, opiate use decreases, those things can reduce um, that risk. But central sleep apnea due to chronic disease is unlikely to resolve. Okay, co-hosts, any any other questions? Did we did we miss anything? I mean, we've hit a ton here. So I think Cyrus touched on just perioperative considerations. Obviously, that's a whole topic unto itself. But in terms of, again, selfishly, the primary care setting and things that we should be aware of, like, does that person automatically need pulmonology clearance or how? Is there any special considerations for someone with suspected or known OHS perioperatively? Let, let's say they get approved for bariatric surgery. Um, what should we be thinking about as we proceed? That's a great That's a great point, too. So I think first and foremost, so if we, so if John or Pick are already on their pap therapy, um, and then they get quali- they get qualified for bariatric surgery. The things that I would say that you would want to make sure is number one, are they adherent to therapy? 
adherence is the most, and we didn't, I didn't say that. I'm so glad you just said that. That's probably the most important thing as a primary care physician you can do is to follow up and ask them if they're using it, right? So there's so many patients who come back to me as a specialist after three years and they hadn't used it. But if you're asking regularly, hey, are you using your PAP? Are you using it all night? Are you having any problems? Are you changing your mask? Do you need anything? Like those little questions, they take two seconds. And I think that's important. So are, are they adherent to therapy? And reiterating the importance to them that they bring that device to the surgery with them and they use it postoperatively to re and if you know the settings are on, making sure that they let the anesthesiologist know the settings that they're on, making sure that they tell the anesthesiologist that they have this disorder and you kind of pass it on because they might use um, more quickly reversing anesthetics. They might avoid a basal anesthetic rate. Um, they might make sure that they are avoiding supine position. So there's lots of things that they might do to increase safety perioperatively if they know about the disorder ahead of time. And then, you know, obviously making sure that your patient isn't horribly acidotic. Chuck. <laughs> well, hmm. this has been amazing, but if you had to pick like two or three things that the audience should remember from your teaching, what, what would that be? And, and then we'll let you go because we've been holding you hostage for at least an hour, probably more. So I would say, um, remember that obesity is a disease. That's probably first and foremost. And the higher the body mass index, um, the greater the risk. Along that line, the greater the apnea hypopnea index for if you have obstructive sleep apnea, the greater the risk of obesity hypoventilation syndrome. So the more severe your patient is, the, the more you should be worrying about that. And oxygen is not a substitute for ventilation. I think that's probably my biggest one. And adherence, adherence, adherence. Ask your patient if they're using it. So non-adherence is a really big problem with sleep disorder breathing. And there's lots of things we can do, but we have to know they're not using it first. All right. We will fade into the outro. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> Straightforward, to the point, I liked it. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, Paul, because we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producers for this episode. Oh, geez, who's that person again? Um... Cyrus the Younger? No, no idea. Oh, yes. That's right. <laughs> and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, Kate Grant for cover art, Tima Karganoff on our website, MJ Allen and Jeff Carter on the transcription team, and Chris the Jew Man Jew on Facebook. Until next time, this list is getting a lot longer. I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. A reminder that this and most episodes can be found for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org through our partnership with VCU Health Continuing Education. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I look forward to seeing you all again in the future. I'm Dr. Cyrus Askin. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. We should also thank Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye, Paul. <laughs>